Hey guys, this is David Rayburn coming back to you uh, today with Dr. McKenna, who is a associate program director at the Indiana University Pediatrics Residency. He's also a general pediatrician over at the Pediatric and Adolescent Care Center. Today we're going to be talking to you about some metabolisms and genetic stuff. Welcome, Dr. McKenna. Hello. I'd also like to point out for the record that I'm now an associate professor of clinical pediatrics, which means that I'm super smart. So congratulations to me. Absolutely. I apologize for not giving you due credit. So um, as we talk to you about with each segment, metabolism comes down to about one and a half to two and a half percent, one and a half for metabolism, two and a half percent for genetics. The problem with that is it seems like a low number, but it's something that questions always pop up on the in-training, always pop up on the boards. It's definitely a topic that we need to talk a little bit more about. My guess is that this is a source of angst for a lot of us, so Dr. McKenna, we appreciate you spending some time with us to help lock down some of these disease processes. No problem. I'm going to apologize ahead of time that I am not Dr. Hainline. Uh, that may be good or bad, depending on your perspective today, but uh, I... Don't, on the plus side, you don't have to be Dr. Hainline to do well on these questions. And I think that's part of why I wanted to take on this challenge today is to show people you don't have to be the world's foremost expert in met- metabolic or genetic disorders to be able to pass these questions. Well, that's a good thing because I don't think any of us are experts on this. All right, so let's go ahead and get started. So patterns of inheritance uh, always seem to confuse us. Uh, it seems like we might as well start with our dominant recessive nonsense. So why don't we go ahead and start with Uh, X-linked recessive. Sure. And before we start uh, getting into the specifics, I think this is a good time to mention, like, draw it out. When you, because if you look at the content specifications from the boards, they're not going to want you to, they're not going to list like which, you know, it's not going to be a matching question. Like which of these is goes with which one? Partly because if you really deep, deep dive into it, it's all really confusing. Like genetics is not, like we've come well past the days of Mendel with his beans and everything fitting into a neat little box. There's a lot of other parts to it. Um, and so if you can understand some of the basics and all of this high school biology stuff, you're not going to kick yourself when you're sitting there looking at this question. Cause there's nothing more frustrating than looking at a question when you're taking the boards going, I used to know the answer to this. I mean, I might've been like a freshman in high school when I knew the answer, but I knew it at some point and now I don't. And then you're going to think about it for like five more questions and you're not going to think about those. And it's going it, to, that's, can, and then those couple of questions can be the difference between passing and failing. So, you know, use your time wisely when you don't study this stuff now, necessarily use the time towards when you're actually going to take the board. to so like cram some of the stuff in and just refresh yourself of what, how each of these things goes. So if we want to start with X-linked disorders, that's fine. I think X-linked recessive is sort of the one that you classically think about when you think about X-linked diseases. The biggest thing to think about is males are affected and females are the carriers. It's technically not impossible for a female to be affected, but that goes well beyond what what the board is going to ask you. Uh, It's exceedingly unlikely. The biggest, you know, the classic one to think about is hemophilia. Um, You know, if you think about the British royal family from back in the day with all their consanguinity, and uh, they had a history of hemophilia in, in part because even though it's something that should be pretty rare when they kept mixing the genes not out of the same pool, um, it kept getting passed you know, from male to female carrier to male. And it is your classic sort of X-linked recessive trait where the males are affected and the females are the carriers. So when you draw it out, if it only is affecting the males and it's skipping over the generation of females, um, that's probably going to be an X-linked recessive disease. Just to cut in real quick, I think that's actually a great idea when you're taking the test to actually draw it out and see how they're presenting the question because it'll probably allow you to eliminate a couple of the answers. 
Exactly. The other thing to think about with some of with X-linked diseases in general, especially the recessive ones, is while the males are going to be truly affected, some of the females can have some mild symptoms. So if you think about things like G6PD, which is X-linked recessive, but there's a lot of like things to think about in terms of like penetrance and blah blah all that blah 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 stuff. But females can still be affected. It depends on you know because with G6PD. If you are slightly affected, whereas if you have hemophilia, like if, if you have 50% or more um, or even 50% or less effectiveness of your clotting factors, you're still going to be fine. You've got to get down to like that 10% level um, or somewhere in that range. But if 50% of your red blood cells are GC, have G6PD issues, you still can have some of those symptoms that you get with G6PD, even though you aren't classically like having a classic G6PD outbreak. So it's one of those things where females can have, you know, if they're a hemophilia carrier, they might have some mild bleeding symptoms. Um, that may or may not come across in the boards, but I think that's good to remember for real life, is even though they aren't technically classically affected, they can still have some mild symptomatology. And while we are trying to do board review stuff, it's always nice to have a little bit of extra clinical stuff to go on as well. So we appreciate that. No problem. Um, some of the other, other diseases you might want to think about uh, in terms of things that might you might list in various review books. If you're thinking about like chronic granulomatous disease or nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, retinitis pigmentosa, there are a lot of them that have a X-linked component or they have like five different types and one of them is X-linked. So you may come across that. Again, I wouldn't focus too much on listing out five different diseases because the boards aren't really going to ask that. They're mostly going to ask, can you recognize what is being distributed in X-linked recessive manner? And so focus on that. All right, so we covered a little bit about the X-linked recessive. I don't think there's a lot about X-linked dominant that we need to know about, but correct me if I'm wrong. There's not a ton. You're right. I think because most of the time it's the cases are a lot more complicated than just sort of straight up Mendelian genetics. Um, if you basically the thing is since dads only give one X and it's dominant, like everyone who gets that X is going to be affected. So the daughters will be affected, but the sons won't be because the dad didn't give the X to the son. The dad only gave the Y. That's why they're a son. Again, high school biology. Um, and so in this case. The dads are the carriers and the daughters are affected. Again, a lot of the diseases you're going to see mentioned in this category, it's a little more complicated. So that's, again, why they're not going to have you pick like in a matching list, like which of these is X-linked dominant. But you may have to try and pick out from the description is, you know, does this theoretic disease, they might not even give you disease names or just say, hey, this is how the inheritance pattern is. I mean, they might even draw out the squares and circles for you. I don't know. So there are a couple different diseases you can think about, one of which is X-linked hypophosphatemic rickets. That's not fully understood. Uh, similar with pseudo-hyperparathyroidism. That actually is more of a case of parental inheritance and not necessarily X-linked dominant. So there are also diseases, and there's a content specification or kind of like out, content outline about it, where it's not as straightforward as it's on the X. It depends on any of the chromosomes. Did you get this version from your mom or from your dad? You know, it gets into ideas of imprinting and things like that. If you look at the content specifications, which I always mention, abp.org, if you just search for content outline, they will give it to you. The nice thing now is they used to have it divided out by, this is the one for the general initial certification exam that you guys are going to take, and then there's the one for the recertification, which is the one I now have to take. So you're not, you're not going to have to know the details of any of these things, but knowing about things like imprinting, how mitochondrial disorders are passed along, um penetrance, incomplete penetrance, anticipation, all of those terms 
which you've forgotten about since college biology or high school biology, those may make a brief appearance on here. Again, these are not things that you want to cram into your long-term memory. If you just have it at the tip of your tongue, right for exam day, and then it goes away, that's probably all you really need to have about that. I've heard that um, from a couple people, actually, as far as when they go to take their recertification. It's just looking over the genetic stuff right before mm -hmm. just to kind of you know, sharpen it, find it somewhere in the back of the brain where it's been hiding. Yeah. Some people will talk about, getting back to X-linked dominance, some people will talk about Acardi syndrome, which is technically an X-linked dominant um, disease. The problem is it's not going to be passed along classically. It's more of a sporadic mutation. So, yes, it's on the X chromosome, but it, it, it sporadically occurs on the X chromosome and then gets passed to that to your offspring. And then the offspring don't pass it, usually pass it along for various reasons. Um, for people who don't know, like I didn't know before I started today, Acardi syndrome is an infantile spasm, brain development um, disorder, can have a lot of serious implications for the brain. Uh, the other thing you'll think about is Alport syndrome. There's actually a lot of different types. A majority of them are X-linked dominant. That's going to be kidney, eye, ear in, uh, involvement. It's because the genetic disorder affects the basement membrane of all of those places and all of those things will not work to varying degrees. So you're going to have a lot of kidney issues, probably going to have some deafness, and you might even have some oculo, um, oculomotor or some other issues with your eyes. For you guys listening, I bet you didn't think you were going to get all that extra information. You thought you were just going to get how modes of inheritance. Oh, yeah. I try to give a little extra whenever I can, because that's me. I'm Mr. 110%. The one last disease you might want to think about is Bruton's. It's not really called that anymore. It's more just called, you know, because people are going away from stuff named after people. So the chances of, you know, McKenna-itis or something is going away. But there's Bruton's A-gamma globulinemia or just X-linked A-gamma globulinemia. You know, the biggest thing to think about is it's it affects all your B cells. And the classic thing is, A, you're going to have bacterial infections frequently. Um, kids may or may not have tonsils or adenoids because they don't have any B cells. You might not even be able to really detect any peripheral lymph nodes, although because of the T cells, you might still be able to get a little bit. So, But that's technically one that could be considered an excellent dominant disease. All right, good. Let's go ahead and move on to autosomal dominant. These are probably some more familiar ones for us. At least we maybe know the disease a little bit better, but just to kind of tie the disease together with its mode of inheritance probably help us out. Yeah, and again, I don't think that they're going to have a matching list, like which of these is autosomal dominant versus which is autosomal recessive. Um, but I think you can, if you do happen to have to be able to guess, um, some interesting things that I had learned as I was getting prepared for this today is typically autosomal dominant diseases lead to a gain of function of some kind. So something overproduces, overgrows, um, you get more functionality than you normally would have. Um, the other big thing, especially as compared to autosomal recessive, is there's going to be an obvious history in the family because it's dominant. You're going to see it all the time. You're not going to have a bunch of silent carriers that all of a sudden then finally when you get the unfortunate mathematical circumstance of two carriers meeting up and having offspring, people who have autosomal, do autosomal dominant diseases, you're going to see that in their history. You know, we, oh, we have a history of achondroplasia or Marfan's or retinoblastoma or things like that. Those are going to be something that usually is in the family because it's it's dominant, so you're going to see that um, fairly regularly. Whereas, you know, like I said, autosomal recessive, you're not going to see that as often in your in your history, except for something maybe that's really similar. Like usually, people when they have sickle cell anemia, they have heard of like a cousin or they know somebody, but it's not like yep, my dad and his dad and and everybody sort of back through the lineage had it. 
they kind of know, oh, maybe I know one person, um, especially for something very common like that where there's a lot of carriers out there. Uh, but that's actually going to be atypical, I think, when it's classic when you think about autosomal recessive diseases, but it's not necessarily typical for the way a lot of autosomal um, recessive diseases work in that, you know, when you think of things like galactosemia or alpha-1 antitrypsin, other things that are classic autosomal recessive, most of the time in your family, you're not going to go, oh, yeah, you know, cousin Stu and grandma and grandpa, they all had it because those are much more rare. Sickle cell sometimes can trick you that way because you think, oh, this is how they all work, but it's not. So for the most part, autosomal recessive are going to have a loss of function or some uh, in some way, shape, or form where something doesn't work anymore. And it's going to be a not obvious family history because it's recessive because it's mostly carriers. That was a good transition right into recessive. So I think we probably hit both of them. Anything you can think of that we need to add to this talk as far as our in modes of inheritance and these specific diseases? I'm going to list off the topics that they list in the content specifications and then add one other different thing um, specifically. When you're talking about modes of inheritance, again, you're going to want to know autosomal dominant. You're going to want to know autosomal dominant in the, in the scenario of incomplete penetrance as well as variable expressivity. You're going to want to know autosomal recessive. Can you identify that? Can you identify X-linked dominant? Can you identify X-linked recessive? Can you identify multifactorial um, genetic inheritance? Can you identify mitochondrial? Can you, which again is all by the moms. If we get all you know back you know to the Lucy or whatever. You know we have our mitochondria from our moms all the way back in the day. And then anticipation, which anticipation is when things get worse over time. That's usually going to be one of those like triplet you know, amplifications over time, like a Huntington's kind of thing, where it gets worse through the generations because you get more and more expansions uh, and things like that. The last thing to think about, there's a couple other things which I'm not going to get into just because we could talk about this all day because there's a lot of content specifications. But they're going to ask you about prenatal testing and postnatal testing. Why should you get them? What's the role of them? How do they get in? How do they affect what you're going to do in terms of your anticipatory guidance? When do you need to do genetic counseling? Things like that. So honestly, those are going to be the questions you're going to see more often. Those you can't necessarily study for um, specifically, but have, playing with that in your mind, thinking about that, looking a little bit about that, you know, a couple of days before you go take the exam. This is not the thing to put in your memory banks for three years from now. Uh, and then when you get to the test, yep, I remember that three years ago and totally gone. So that's one of those things like along with uh, to be honest sensitivity specificity you know we're not here about biostatistics today but that's the one thing i crammed into my brain literally the minute before the exam and i wrote it down on my scratch pieces of paper i don't know if you actually get those anymore now that it's on the computer but if you could find it like if you could find a way to like as soon as you can like get it on your scratch pieces of paper so you don't forget it like it's something you brought into the test with your brain and then you immediately transferred to something else that is legitimate and allowed hey man go for it we get these little dry erase boards now ah yes very good see i'm i don't feel that old but man <laughs> so yeah, if you can remember some of those things, and I think that will help you a lot. When should you do prenatal testing? When should you do postnatal testing? How does that help? When does genetic counseling come into play? Those are part of the content specifications, which you wouldn't think if you didn't look at them like, oh, I need to know that. Everybody thinks, oh, I've got to know how exactly all these things, which disease is which, and it's a matching list. Like It's not like that. And the content-specific uh, outline that Dr. McKenna keeps referring to is what we refer to when we tell you the percentage that each section is worth. So just to kind of tie those together. All right, now that we got through that, I want everybody to stop, rewind, listen to this again, get it a little bit fresh in your memory, and then when you're about to take a test, just look at it right before. Mm-hmm.